Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here in New York in our studio with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our digital director, Mike Hogan. You're actually here. I love being here. It's so exciting. It feels so cozy to be in this room with all the padding around us. Uh, But on the line, as always, Joanna Robinson, we miss you here. You are here with us in our hearts. Not here is Joanna Robinson. Hi, guys. (laughs) Not here. Representing the West Coast Mm -hmm. and the heartland, as always. (laughs) Joanna, come back to New York soon. It's it's great here. I love it. Uh, so we're recording this on Wednesday, when kind of in the uh, the maelstrom after the midterm elections. I'm very tired. I think Mike is as well. I don't know if Richard and Joanna had more responsible sleep habits. I had but... to stay up late to watch Scott Walker lose, and I'm so happy I did. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. That is a really good feeling. I hate that guy. <laughs> so we don't want to talk too much about the midterms, because obviously there are many more uh, well-versed political people to talk about it. But the impact that they might have on the Oscar race, I think, is interesting, coming off of this a very political award season that we had last year. We're also going to talk a little bit about Netflix's plan to release Roma in theaters and what that is going to look like for them uh, and then take a, another look at Bohemian Rhapsody I think which we discussed and none of us had seen except Hilary Busis who kind of weighed in on it and then it became a huge hit uh, and then the back half of this episode Cam Collins is going to be back to share an interview he did with Bing Liu the director of Minding the Gap the documentary that's on Hulu now and we'll talk a little bit more about that film later on so politics Mike you were up late watching the news, just like the rest of us. Yeah, I feel like you have been the one of us who's most willing to think about how politics affects these awards people in Hollywood and how much they're thinking about themselves and Trump and everything else. So after all of this, after this kind of valve has been released, like you were saying before we recorded, to get some of this like liberal energy out, what are we going to see on award shows uh, from all these people now? And I apologize in advance to the people who don't like to hear about politics. But <laughs> but I do think the Oscars are very political. It's very inherently political. political. Hollywood has, has been going through an incredibly political moment. And unquestionably, the election of Trump to the horror of sort of liberal America certainly played a part in, you know, the whole Me Too mo- movement and mm-hmm. Time's Up and all of that, right? I, I think what's happened with Trump is a lot of people on the progressive side of the equation have one after another looked at things that they thought were completely settled and realized that for a lot more Americans than they ever imagined, they were not settled. And also that things that they were kind of in denial about, they needed to confront, I guess. Or things that they felt like they didn't have to talk about. They suddenly said, okay, it's time to talk about this at the Golden Globe. Right. I mean, if you think about what Me Too was, it was a lot of people just sharing an experience that they thought was a lot more unique than it turned out to be when, when suddenly there was this gigantic flood. I mean, I think that was an awakening for a lot of people. So so to the extent that there is a healthy silver lining of this strange period of time that we're going through, I think it's people sort of like coming to terms with with issues in the world and 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 then taking a constructive approach in many cases. There's lots of whining and rending of garments, but there's also a lot of organizing. People have gotten into politics. I, I'm, so many people that I know have said, like, I was phone banking. I was, you know, out there, like, helping people. And so that's really interesting. But yes, now that there's been this one achievement uh, in, in for Democrats, for progressives in taking 
taking back the house, I do suspect, and after a full year of Me Too and all the rest of it, I imagine that the temperature is going to be cooler um, on a lot of these things. There's going to be less of a kind of frantic need to make everything overtly political. Mm-hmm. We probably go back a little bit to the old version where it's all, you know, bubbling under the surface. ACLU a bit more. ribbons and like, yeah. veiled comments in an acceptance speech. But of course, I can't resist looking at the, you know, list of possible Best Picture nominees and winners and thinking about how they line up along these lines, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, you've got A Star is Born is sort of the kind of purple choice in a way. I mean, it's probably the progressive's idea of a purple choice because on the one hand, it's like alt country and on the other hand, it's uh, Lady Gaga in a drag bar. <laughs> it's it's the LGBT movie this year, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> So no, that's the favorite too, but yeah. um, can you ever forgive me? I mean, it's yeah. got. In other words, it has the. It has. It ha- kind of plays to both sides. You know, there's an argument to be made that Bradley Cooper is at least like an Austin, Texas type of a guy, if not, you know, a blue dot guy. <laughs> he probably voted there's for a, Beto. There's a red Jackson state name. thing going on there somewhere. Roma is is really, you know, if people really, if a lot of people watch it, I think that they'll find it's an incredibly kind of political statement at the end of the day, insisting on the humanity of somebody who is just generally speaking very marginalized. Green Book, you know, there's some, we've talked about it. There's this kind of like concern that it's got some driving Miss Daisy type reactionary politics while on the face of it being a pro let's all get along you mm-hmm. know better movie that is what driving miss daisy is about too right i yeah. haven't seen that movie in a while <laughs> yeah and i shouldn't say i, I mean right that's the driving miss daisy conundrum is yeah. like for, you know and then you've got you know speaking of somebody who likes to criticize driving miss daisy you've got spike lee in there with black klansman a movie that is outwardly saying something that a lot of people are realizing right now which is that we need to take right-wing white nationalist terrorism a lot more seriously Mm -hmm. from a law enforcement. I mean, that's just, that's what the movie is. (laughs) And, you know, you read articles now where people are like, oh, maybe the FBI should be, like, looking at this stuff. It's (laughs) like, go watch Spike's movie. (laughs) So, and you go on to, I mean, Black Panther obviously has a kind of populist sort of progressive, you know, uh, celebration aspect to it. First Man has been the subject of a lot of weird political battles with the New Yorker slamming it as reactionary. A lot of people on the right, you know, complaining that they don't see the flag get driven into the... Marco Rubio weighed in. In other words, I don't think, I certainly don't think we're like out of the woods here in terms of the Oscars being massively politicized and everybody, if nothing else, it's so tempting for people uh, attached to each film to use that as a lever, right? When when you're going down the, the wire and, and mm-hmm. you've got a competitor, you know, that's so much the subject of the Whisper campaigns is like, well, you know, it's got some issues. Or, you know, I want to vote for Roma because I want to prove that I think Mexicans are people, which is what the yeah. president does not want to believe. And, and then you have to kind of worry about that Bradley effect uh, that people were talking about last night with some of the races in, in Florida and Georgia where people say, oh, I'll vote vote for the kind of like politically correct thing and then behind closed doors they're like actually I'm going to vote for you know the thing I, I really like but I didn't want anyone to know that I'm blatantly racist or whatever. Wait, you said Bradley Effect and I thought you meant Bradley Cooper. That's not what you mean. <laughs> what no the it's the thing in Cal- from Cal- of California election a long time ago right? The Bradley Effect yeah it's based on a, a candidate I think his name is, was Tom Bradley and he was running and leading in the polls similar to what we saw with Andrew Gillum uh. last night people get a call from the pollsters and they're like, yeah, sure, I think he's great. And then in the privacy of the polling booth, they may be more racist than they want to let on. Right. And I think we're all familiar with that phenomenon with the Academy from time to time, especially with a lot of sort of virtue signaling 
ostensible progressives. Right. So there is a lot to discuss. And I think the last thing to think about with politics and the Oscars this year is like, can Hollywood compete on an entertainment value level with Donald Trump, this crazy sort of vampire squid P.T. Barnum <laughs> world wrestling reality TV you know, carnival broker. Who wants nothing more than all the attention that you're giving to anything else. Yeah. I mean, that's what he lives for and yeah. spends all of his day thinking about and, and you know, using the, the biggest megaphone in the world to get. So that's always sort of there, too. Like, do the Oscars even matter when Trump is doing the craziest pro wrestling reality show from the White House all day, every day? on Twitter and Fox News. I mean, I think about that all the time, how he's really successfully, uh, and I hate to use the word successfully, turned the presidency into like the number one show in the world. You know, like we talk about the monoculture and like there'll never be a hit like Game of Thrones again, but like this is it. This is what everyone's watching every single day is the Trump show. And um, I don't know, it's it's impossible to unplug. It's unconscionable to unplug. You kind of want to look away. But it's I think that's an excellent question, Mike, is like how, how does the Academy, how does the movie industry as a whole command the attention when someone else is sucking so much air in the room? And I think the initial answer to that was by being hashtag resistance. Yeah, by talking right, back right. to Trump through the award shows. And so maybe they'll continue that and maybe not. You know, I don't I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, obviously politicians are trying to figure this out too. So I don't know. I mean, Hollywood has to sort of feel its way through all of this. But I do think it's interesting. And I don't want to be imbalanced in case we have some conservative listeners. I think the issue is just that when we're talking about Hollywood, we're talking about a world that is 85%, I think, on the progressive side of the ledger. Or if they are not, feel like they need to go along with the yeah. the general mindset, which is what Hence you hear from... the Bradley effect. <laughs> yeah. Lest they be lumped in with James Woods and have to make uh, movies with Kirk Cameron. <sighs> Fate worse than death. <laughs> Where do you think that Vice could fit into all that, since that's like still a great unknown in this race for a lot of us, and is like the most nakedly political Oscar contender in theory, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it could very well. I think it could do really well if it's if it's kind of like the Pod Save America of um you know of this Oscar season, and it becomes a, a rallying point. I don't know if people actually care about Dick Cheney now or not. Is the one sort of weird question I have. Well, it's a matter of tone. We don't really know what the tone of that movie is. It, my guess is that it's not something that's going to try to humanize him too much. That it's like going to be like a dark story about how this guy did all these dark things. And in that case, like, you know, if we are riding a little high right now, we, you know, on the left or whatever, um, maybe we're okay with that. You know, maybe we're okay with a little Cheney because like we feel a little bit triumphant right now. I think that if Tuesday had gone another direction, I don't think there would be any appetite for a movie like that. Mm. Um, yeah, oh, that's interesting. And, yeah. and it makes me curious, mm-hmm. too, just in terms of you think about last year and about, you know, it was the second Oscars in the Trump era. But it, it really feels like, you know, it was the first full year of all that. And The Shape of Water ended up winning, which was a kind of, I mean, not apolitical exactly, but sort of a cozy, romantic, yeah. nice choice. And maybe it was because we were people were, you know, feeling beaten down and scared and they just wanted to go for something romantic and that made them feel good. And now if we, again, have a little momentum behind us, do we say, yeah, Black Panther wins or Black Panther mm-hmm. wins or, you know, so, something else that feels more, like you said, you know, like Roma is political in a, in a sense. So Or is yeah. it a Star is Born, which is a huge or, well, hit and yeah. kind of cozy and apolitical in its way, too. Yeah, I don't know. 
Well, I feel like Shape of Water also had this narrative around it of like this is a this is a story about inclusivity. Like the fish, the fish monster is a metaphor for all the people who are marginalized by the you know because there's all that. Now, like, Guillermo del Toro said that in interviews. I think weird stuff about the KGB and like all of that. In honor there, the so. fish, honor the yeah. film. Yeah, exactly. Well, and Guillermo being Mexican had and sort and of inherently about that too, political about thing like there being too. Someone from like you know from another side who can be otherized by people. I mean, it definitely he he leaned into that metaphor. But, but I think Richard, you're right. Like it was fairly a political, you know, compared to even Moonlight. Or Get Out. Um, which or The Post. Probably closest yeah. Or The Post. Get Out. Yeah. But actually, I mean, A Star is Born is like really apolitical if you think about it, you yeah. know. That, and I wonder if that's an issue for A Star is Born at the end of the day. Like, we all went nuts for it critically in the kind of like, wow, this is a guilty pleasure that I actually love. And it has been a hit, but I don't, I mean, it kept losing to Venom, right? I mean, I don't know if that matters or not. Like, I don't know how much money it has to make to I have be no like explanation a true monster hit. If its narrative was going to be, wow, this is a critically acclaimed massive blockbuster hit, did it actually achieve the second part of that to the level that that's the kind of like best picture winning momentum? Or does that leave an opening for somebody else to come in? I just want to clarify to our listeners, um, at the end of Stars Born after the credits, there's a scene where Jackson Maine battles Venom oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and loses. <laughs> oh, And then Freddie Mercury comes in. <laughs> yeah, with his big teeth. I mean, A Star is Born has made $166 million at this point. It's just about to pass Hotel Transylvania 3 in the box office and then after that Crazy Rich Asian. So it's, uh, I mean, it's it's still pretty huge. It does seem like if there's going to be like a movie that will bring us together, which I don't know like if that was what the national mood is, but I do think that's kind of a unifying force, maybe even more so than Black Panther, even though Black Panther is a much bigger hit. I mean, it, it felt biggish, but it also felt, it, once again, it feels early. Yeah, like like peaking too early in the it, Yeah, race. an early peak, not as leggy as maybe we would hope. You know, and, and what's interesting is, like, we don't know what we know until these things hit the mainstream. And so, like, I think we're today reassessing our Bohemian Rhapsody, like, feelings because of the way in which the mainstream has reacted to it. And so, like, once again, these these other things that have yet to open wide – we don't know what we don't know yet. Yeah, Vice comes out and makes $85 million. Yeah, then yeah. we say <laughs> the Dick Cheney revival is mm-hmm. upon us. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I just feel like on a, on a basic level, like it's hard for me to imagine something like Meryl Streep at the Golden Globes yelling about Trump in, I guess, January 2017, like right before the inauguration. He feuded with her on Twitter. Like, remember how that's how he started his but presidency? Can I say one more thing about that? I yeah. think a lot of people are wising up to what feeds Trump and helps him and what mm-hmm, doesn't. Mm-hmm. And going up against him in that way and kind of spouting your your outrage in a way that enables, gives him the opportunity to hit back. I think a lot of people have decided they don't want to play that game mm-hmm. anymore, including yeah. probably a lot of celebrities, if yeah. I had to guess. There was a time to say, let's make it very clear that we're against this. And then it feels like there's now kind of a time to say, if this two-year-old wants to keep having a tantrum, we, the rest of us can go on. To we can go operate things. on another that feels to me we like we can go knock on doors and get progressive candidates in things and yes. win, yeah. Yeah. you know. And so I feel like, yeah, the, the, maybe the pointedness won't be there in such a way, but like the academy will just go and you know either nominate or award you know movies that feel like that same momentum, mm-hmm. of, you know. Plus, you don't want to like fall into unintentionally into the Oprah trap and like be accused of running for president just because you give a rousing speech at an award ceremony. <laughs> yes. Oh God! By the time award season happens, we'll have like ten declared Democratic candidates all running. It'll be too crowded to make your way in there. Also, don't be surprised if people in Hollywood are just say, "Oh, great, everything's fixed now," and get super complacent. Oh, going and forward. Green Book wins. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I, I'm telling you, I. 
don't be shocked. Yeah. Oh man, we got we got a long way to go still. Um, so let's let's talk about Bohemian Rhapsody, Joanna. Since you brought it up, we talked last week about Best Actor, and I think both of us we definitely mentioned Rami Malek, but I think we were both a little bit iffy on his chances of breaking into Best Actor, even though his performance has been so praised as part of this movie that it has somewhat a mixed critical reception. Um, and there's been the kind of the the hoary meme going around being like, oh, it's a critic proof movie. It's proof that critics don't get it, which I take objection to. But I mean, we do have to consider Bohemian Rhapsody way more than we did two weeks ago, right? I would say absolutely. I mean, like, I think, um, you know, something that we should have paid more attention to maybe is the idea that, like, even people who were really down on the movie, as you say, Katie, were really high on Rami. And, like, the when he won the um, Emmy for Mr. Robot, that was also a time when that show was not as high as it had been when it first premiered. Just that, like, Rami Malek's win and, and Rami Malek's career in general, I think, has just been, like, a tremendous amount of goodwill for him as a performer, despite maybe the whatever's happening around him, because he is just, like, a very magnetic performer. And, you know, and then when you have a large swath of audience, because, like, you know, from my man-on-the-street perspective, not only do I know a lot of people who saw it opening weekend, but I expected them to go see it and then come back and be like, oh, I wish I hadn't. They were all like, eh pretty good i liked it all the behind the scenes machinations that we discussed a couple weeks ago on this podcast they have no idea about it so they were just like uh, you know when i pointed out i was like well didn't you think it was a little bit much like the other queen members were taking credit they're like oh yeah i see it now that you pointed out but it didn't really land with <laughs> me when i watched it yeah people, <laughs> i don't know um anyway i'm glad people enjoyed the queen movie and i mean like it is it was a really canny movie as I suspect like the Elton John uh, movie that's coming out um, I think next year will be is like this is such built in advertisement when you are when you are a studio and you're looking for intellectual property when you're looking for um, you know like a franchise or a book adaptation or whatever people are familiar with like when you can release a trailer that's just like wall to wall queen hits and people are like well I want to go watch wall to wall queen hits on the big screen like that's what people are there for you know this is like kind of the ultimate jukebox musical as as disguised as a biopic and it's funny with as i was watching the success of it after our conversation i'm thinking to myself why did we bet against the guys from queen who turned their kind of like perfectly good rock music <laughs> into a giant international you know like popular money printing thing i've got to give credit to brian hyatt who's a really smart writer at rolling stone who had this Good tweet the other day. He said, I dare someone to write a the success of Greta Van Fleet. I don't are you guys familiar with Greta Van Fleet, the new rock band that got a 0.0, I think, uh, review on Pitchfork and is like <laughs> huge now. The success of Greta Van Fleet and Bohemian Rhapsody suggests a powerful unmet hunger for rock music out there. Oh that, that, boy. You know, he's ready for someone to write that think piece. But people are ready. They're they they want some rock. They want to rock. Sure. This is all part of my theory that we're going into the millennial seventies. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, sorry, we're in the millennial 70s. We're going to so end. gas prices are going to go up. <laughs> That's what a star is born is, in theory, right? You know? Uh-huh. That's true. Ish. Yes. The thing I'm curious about with Bohemian Rhapsody in kind of a grim way is here we have a $50 million opening for a director who is mired in, you know, potential scandal. There's rumor of an Esquire article looming. There have been other articles and reports yeah. about alleged behavior that um, is enough real I've, scandal. I've heard things about the Esquire article that like it's if they're able to p- publish the stuff it's like career ending. But right now that's not out yet. And yeah. so 
you know, are we just going to go full steam ahead with Brian Singer? I mean, he's he's got Red Sonja, I guess, now with with uh, the same studio. It's just an interesting sort of thing to watch because, like, he got fired off the movie. We we're like, okay, this is the beginning of the end, and then the movie comes, and then yeah. it got bad reviews, and we we're like, okay. But then it's a huge hit. So yeah, he got fired off the movie in the middle of Me Too. Like it was sometime last fall. But yeah. it was like, oh, he just he he should have played to set all the time. Like he was not fired for any like personal behavior issues, which was a weird, fascinating wrinkle. But it did kind of feel like, all right, fine. He got Me Too. He's done for. Right. And it, I don't. I just can't think of another recent example of someone like Rami Malek now feels like he has a decent shot at a Best Actor nomination, yeah. and will be doing a full like months and months of Oscar campaign uh, for a movie directed by a director who we like. I think he's admitted that they've feuded on set. Like, well, that was part of the major report. I feel like. Rami Malek coming to like literal, well, not literal blows. Brian Singer like threw something not at Rami Malek when they were fighting on set. That's in the THR like expose about it. But yeah. like that was what I think finally stopped Brian Singer is like Rami Malek being like, he goes or I go. Yeah. Didn't he like call the studio and was like, get him out of here? But what's interesting to me is like, I didn't, I guess I didn't fully realize that, that Brian Singer, because of a quirk of the DGA, like it gets full director credit on this Dexter mm-hmm. Fletcher who finished the film doesn't so if Bohemian Rhapsody were in conversation in like some of the other categories not lead actor then yeah I, I like you know is Brian Singer gonna walk home with an award this season like that 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 still feels a little far off talking about Rami Malek instead of talking about the movie itself is what we might wind up doing because then Rami Malek gets brownie points and I don't mean that condescendingly I like brown like for pushing Brian Zinger off this project um, sure, or standing like, up like for himself. It's like the Revenant. Like, it's yeah. like his sleeping in a, in a buffalo carcass is getting his director fired. Right, I don't know. So, Joanna, you saw Bohemian Rhapsody. I did, yes. Okay, and the rest of us who are still waiting our turn, huh? Um, some plane somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I just, I'm so biased against music biopics that I just, you know, mm. I just don't care. I think Rami Malek is better than I expected in it. I still think the film, I like, I still largely agree with Hillary's assessment on the, of it on the podcast a couple weeks ago. I see why it's popular. And I think, you know, Rami Malek is good in it as he is good in everything. That best actor category specifically that we talked about last week, Katie, should definitely include him going forward. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so let's wrap up our conversation part of the episode before we get to Cam's interview. Uh, I just wanted to point to an article that Nicole Sperling wrote for us last week about Netflix basically finally deciding what it wants to do with Roma. It's going to be releasing kind of these three uh, Oscar contenders, uh, Roma, and then the Coen Brothers movie Battle of Buster Scruggs, which comes out this week as we record, and then Bird Box with uh, Sandra Bullock. And they'll come out several weeks before they actually go onto Netflix. So Roma's going to be out for a full three weeks before it goes to Netflix, which for any other platform is totally sensible. Amazon has movies in theaters for months and months months before they go into Amazon. But for Netflix, this is kind of a reversal. Like they said, they'd never do it. They came to blows with can over it. Do we think that it will, do we think it'll make a difference how most people watch it? And then also how they'll consider it in the Oscar race? I think that's kind of two separate questions. I think it'll make a difference for film fans who are lucky enough to live in Los Angeles, New York, or Mexico City, yeah. where they'll be able to see yeah. it in those theaters. Those are the, literally early. the only three cities, right? I think right? so. Yeah. yeah, I think those are the only three getting the early release. I've always thought this was good marketing for Netflix and did not understand why they wouldn't do it. To yeah. release it so early in theaters. Yeah, I mean, if everything is marketing at some level, and so movies have like run all these uh, ads on TV in the weeks before they open, and also having movies up on a marquee, even if you kind of say to yourself like, "Oh, I should see that. I'm interested," and you don't actually go. Like then, when you see it, it pop up on Netflix, your you're like, "Oh, I should watch this thing." Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know to what extent that actually matters to Netflix's business model, but I think that's one of the things that kind of is annoying to directors, and then also directors would ideally like to have people watch it. I definitely think it'll help with the Academy. 
I think the Academy will like this. Yeah. It's making the concession that gets the deal done or whatever gets the yeah. bill passed, you know? Um, I also think, I mean, I don't know, again, it's just three cities, but like, and one of them doesn't celebrate this holiday, but like, it's opening over Thanksgiving, you know? And so maybe that's the alternative to the artsy family that doesn't want to see Green Book or the, or the mm. family that lo- has loved Quran's past movies and was like, well, we got to go see that new thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that, that moves the needle any at all, but um, I feel better about the movie's chances knowing that it's going to get something that looks a little bit like a regular release. Yeah. Yeah. I actually wonder about how it feels if you're Paul Greengrass or Tamara Jenkins or Nicole Hollison or one of the other filmmakers who's had a film on Netflix this fall that didn't get that. Or yeah. even the Coen brothers who's, you know, they're, it, Buster Scruggs is going to come out a week before instead of three weeks before. Like that, the way that it's kind of like saying, okay, this is our real one and then the rest of these are going to go on Netflix. Don't you think that would be annoying? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and I saw Matt Bellany tweeting at a THR column today basically saying, like, now everyone's going to ask for this. And mm-hmm. that, that's going to cause yeah, if you Netflix give a mouse a cookie, if you give a Fonzo Corona release. I genuinely do not understand why they have been so stubborn on this topic. It seems like a weird kind of Silicon Valley, like... It's like a dumb billionaire gave a chicken, right? It's like, I said, yeah. I'd never do it, so I'm not going to do it. It just feels to me like a principle instead of a, a thought-through policy that's actually based on like reality. But maybe I'm too dumb to, to get why it's the totally right way to do this. But we don't see their money, so who knows? Yeah. <laughs> it's like my thing about how I never favorite tweets. <laughs> and all like and and then it became this thing like why and I was like I don't really know anymore and, but I just keep not favoriting tweets and you know be, being rude to people. Oh, that makes me feel so much better now that I know that. You, oh no, I just you don't I never do. do. Principle, I never do. Um, it's exactly that, Mike, because there there have been not for, for not every movie. Plenty of movies can just live on Netflix and do very well, as we saw with some of the, some of their more original titles, like you know this summer, like to all the boys I loved before. When you have a Quran movie, like you get goodwill from the industry. People are still going to see it. And even if it's just out in three cities, that's going to b- build word of mouth. And then people will watch it on your service. Like, it just right. makes complete sense Your audience or your prestige audience is people who really care about cinema and, like, check on and see what's playing at their local cool theater. And, you know, it's different from the audience for, uh, like, a teen romance or yeah. something like that, you know? I mean, so why wouldn't you just do... I don't know. I I just don't get why they haven't played the game. I'm I'm happy that they're starting to. I mean, uh, if they win Best Picture with Roma, you can guarantee they'll do it again. Like that. That's going to be the interesting thing to watch. One would forward. think. Yeah. And again, I know we've talked about this already, but Roma literally opens with like what is it? Seven minutes. <laughs> There's like a seven minute credit sequence of somebody mopping a floor. Yeah. You know, like good luck. The, if if you've the got... skip t- intro button shows up on that, I will scream. <laughs> I mean, it's just like you've got, you know, the, yeah, you're like sitting there with like a laptop and a phone and multiple pets and yeah. people in the other room. And dishes to do. You know, it's it's a nice movie to watch in a theater. Yeah. So I'm glad they're doing it. For non-Spanish speakers, movies with subtitles are so much better to watch in the theater because you have to, you have to look at it, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Like there's nowhere else to look. Yeah. yeah. I get so stressed out about people skipping certain movies in the, in the theater because I know they're not going to like like I, I was really pushing people to see Suspiria in the theater because I know it's not going to land at home just because of that the like when a movie like that or Roma takes its time and gets slow and you've got your phone in front of you and you're playing words with friends or whatever like you know it's not it's not the same you can't get lost in it and so unless people are really disciplined at home and like put their devices away but I doubt it so yeah there are certain movies that I just like push really hard Romo would be one of them. Suspiria is another. Go to the theater. I understand that's not an easy proposition for a lot of people these days, but do it. 
And what's going to happen? Like, there's an interesting detail in Nicole's story where they were having negotiations with kind of the big movie exhibitors in Mexico to try to get it, you know, show in the AMC and Regal of Mexico. And they couldn't make a deal because they wouldn't have a 90-day exclusivity window. And there's a similar thing with the major chains in the U.S. with Roma. Like, I was talking to a publicist trying to set up regional screenings of Roma, and they they have such a hard time with screenings of Netflix movies at major theater change because even a screening of the theater change, they're like, nope, Netflix pissed us off, so we don't want anything to do with it. By the way, that's a good point. The theater chains... Are we need them. Like, they also need to like get it together hmm. and get it together with the 21st century, I think. That's interesting. That is the other side of the equation. It's like all the rules that they do, I get it. They they keep them in profitability, but they're constantly complaining that they're at risk and that all these you know streaming services are putting them at risk and anything. Like, experiment a little. Do something interesting and different, yeah. right? Wouldn't it be cool if more movies could be seen in theaters and more towns around the country. Yeah, I mean, we'll see, like AMC Stubbs, I guess, is like kind of the next version of that after MoviePass Crater, finding ways to like make their business model not just about having something only for six months or something like that. Right. Like letting the windows shrink in that way. Yeah. There's also like something cool about a little bit of uh, delayed gratification in our world. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, I see Roma playing there. I should go see it or else I'll have to wait three weeks. That's okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll live. We'll survive. Yeah. Who can imagine waiting three weeks for anything to just be right. delivered directly into your house and, and watch it. <laughs> so are you going to go see Roma over Thanksgiving, Richard, with your with your family? Is that something you can imagine going and taking your parents to see? Um, I, I would, but we're not going to be in our usual spot, so I'm not sure. But I, that that if I was looking at the, the lineup of movies out over Thanksgiving, I mean, obviously we'd go see Nutcracker in the Four Realms for the fourth yes. time. Yeah, uh, one, fourth, one, one once for realm. each realm. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and there's a part of me that also would be like, yeah, Green Book, you know, but mm-hmm. no, Roma would definitely be my top pick. I don't think I would go to the favorite with my family. I'm just thinking of the movies that are nope. going to be available nope. around then. I would, I'm looking forward to seeing the favorite again. Not going to be a they family They can see movie. that on their own. <laughs> exactly. Everyone can discover it for themselves. <laughs> the favorite is exactly the kind of movie that I would put on a screener over the holidays and then like dare 20 minutes and be like, so I should take this yeah. off. <laughs> <laughs> or or my, my like my dad halfway a th- little less than halfway through Phantom Thread last year being turning to me and be like so what's the point of this <laughs> By the way I had just had the opposite experience I feel compelled to tell you that after sort of trash talking Phantom Thread all year last year I watched it again with my wife and she loved it and I much preferred it sitting next to her watching her enjoy it that much than I had the first time. So I feel um, like that's happening with a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson movies. The second viewing is yeah. when you're like, okay, I get yeah. this. And I think once you know where it's going, it's more interesting than when you're like, what I, the hell yeah. is happening with yeah. this movie? That that makes sense. Speaking of wives, did you talk about last week, sorry, I haven't listened yet, about this crazy Kenneth Branagh movie that just got dropped into the Aura season like at like the last minute? No, I did not. Yeah, there's please. this movie called All Is True. Uh, that is getting a little qualifying release at the very end of the year where Kenneth Branagh plays old Shakespeare and Judy Dench is his wife, <laughs> is Anne Hathaway, <laughs> not the actress. Is Kenneth Branagh in like crazy age makeup? Because yeah. Shakespeare looked yeah. a long time, Yeah, I mean, there's, time, a, right? there's a photo that I just uh, was tweeting about. Um, but like, hey, he's got like this, you know, this beard and this hairline and, and it's just like, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, <laughs> so I don't know if he just like won the Oscars, but... <laughs> Something we should keep Joanna, an eye on. our best actor conversation just happened a week too early. There was so much information we had to deal with. Yes, so. There's so many beautiful roughs in this photo that I'm looking Between at. Between that and Mary Queen of Scots, good time for roughs. Mm-hmm. 
I feel like Kenneth Branagh's like, it, he's in his weird hair experimental phase between Poirot and Shakespeare. He's like, just put whatever you want on my face. That's fine. Oh, it's by Ben Elton. That's so interesting. So Ben Elton did like, um, well, he's got a, he's got a, BBC show on right now called The Upstart Crow, which is about the life of Shakespeare. And then he's also very like famous and beloved in England for doing Blackadder. That's like a very famous thing that he did. And so like, oh, it's oh, Ben Elton, Kenneth Branagh, Shakespeare. I'm, I'm in. Right. I'm sold. Okay, let's share Cam's interview with Bing Liu, the director of Mining the Gap. It's nominated for many uh, Critics' Choice Documentary Awards. He's in town for that ceremony this week. Um, I just recently caught up on Mining the Gap, finally, after months of hearing people talk about it. It's on Hulu. It's incredibly easy to access. Joanna, I believe you also just recently watched it on Hulu. I sure did. We talked about Docs a while ago. I don't think we got into Mining the Gap in too much detail. This movie is really incredible. I was so stunned by it. I was like so glad I caught it. Joanna, did you feel the same way? Yes, I thought it was incredible. And like, you know, we don't need to necessarily further bury a film that we've already buried plenty uh, on this podcast. But it made a another skateboarding film that we've talked about look like even more hollow. It's what that movie I think wants to be, but it is authentic and brilliant about these like three friends and the various directions that they went in. And the fact that like, it's got that... Um, that boyhood cachet of like having footage from when they were very young versus I don't know what mid 20 mid to late 20s yeah. now so uh, seven so to see them age, yeah to see them age on camera is just is very powerful it's very very good yeah I know Cam was a big fan of the movie too and really wanted to talk to Bing Liu so uh, I was really excited to be able to put them together for this interview so let's listen to it this is Cameron Austin Collins, film critic for Vanity Fair, and I'm here with Bing Liu, director of the great, great documentary Mining the Gap, which is currently streaming on Hulu. If you haven't seen it, this is a very personal documentary about male adolescence, skate culture, cycles of abuse. Um, but I just wanted to sit and pick Bing's brain a little bit to just get a sense from you of how you made such a personal, revealing but also lively and alert and sensitive movie. So first of all, welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. So first of all, let's talk about making this movie. This is not, as I understand it, start off as you filming things to make a movie per se. Um, you were filming your friends. Is that correct? I mean, yes and no. I mean, in the sense that, you know, I filmed skateboarders. I filmed a community of chosen family who are my friends. Um, yeah, I did that since I was 14 or 15. There's a lot of sleight of hand. I didn't really meet sure. here until I was in my, in my 20s. You know, the other guy, Zach, I had maybe five minutes of footage from him. You know, I knew him very briefly. Kier and Zach are the two main protagonists of, of the film. Kier, uh, you know, he's this teenager. He's like 17 or 18. I forget when we first really pick up from his where his story starts. Um, really charismatic. He's the only African-American person in this white group of friends, this white group of chosen family skateboarders. Zach is, uh, he's like 22 or 23 when we first start picking up with this story. He is about to become a father, but he's charismatic, sort of, you know, this floppy haired, just um, person who's just the center of attention. And um, he's very watchable. And, you know, it's about his journey being a father while not really being prepared for it. Right. And how long did you know Zach? I met him when I was 17 and he lived in like an exurb of Rockford. Uh, I saw him a few times at the skate park. I filmed him because he was really good, but um, you know, we hung out maybe once or twice outside the skate park. And then I moved to Chicago when I was 19. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you'd been filming since you were 14 or 15. What is one filming? I, I know nothing about skate culture. So what I, I mean, from seeing a lot of movies about this recently, mid-90s, Skate Kitchen, et cetera, and also just growing up with movies like Slacker, 
my understanding is that there is often a videographer in the group of skaters. This is a very basic question. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm from New Jersey. I didn't have any skate, really many skateboarders in my town, but the videographer, that was you, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's a common trope. There isn't always a videographer in a skate crew, but the things that make a skate community really thrive, you know, in the absence of any organization or any support is uh, someone who's filming and making content um, within the group. And so, you know, in hindsight, I knew, like, you know, a lot of smaller towns and cities across America, there were skate crews. And, you know, there's a skate, like a skate shop also is another way for a skate culture to survive in a in a town or city. But without a skate filmer, it's like the culture sort of dies. Like after I left Rockford, there was, um, you know, there was sort of this absence of people who were filming skateboarding and making skate videos in a very serious way. And so I, I sort of belonged to a camp, I think, that was, um, you know, looked at skate videos as a, like a form of expression. The reason why I got a camera is actually I met these two um, kids from the Chicago suburbs, uh, Matt and Gene. They spent years making videos and like they had favorite skate videos and they would show me, you know, what they liked and watched. And they used really sensitive music and they like would take time to get non-skateboarding shots for the videos. And so mm. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I want to try doing what they're doing. And so I just started emulating skate videos that I liked, things that were boundary pushing. Right. I mean, my impression from your film in particular is that skate videos have their own visual language, that there's a way in which in your movie you kind of use images of you guys skating um, to sort of, they add this momentum to the movie and they also add this sort of emotional I don't even know how to describe it. There's like this sense of, of freedom in the skating and of expression in the skating that is sort of a counterpoint to some of the more painful things that you guys are talking about. But I was really taken with the images of skating in themselves. They seemed very particular to that world. Yeah, I mean, the images that are created in this world, it's very different from the way people film skateboarding. Traditionally, it's you, it's a fisheye. Everything's fisheye, right. you know. I've noticed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But what I was paying attention to, and this was something people had started doing in the 2000s, I think, more and more, especially a couple of filmers, Evan Hernandez and John Holland, who did a lot of the Transworld videos in that era, they would do things without a fisheye. They did long lens, combining zooms with rolling on a skateboard, right. you know, doing really, really interesting things that were like really, really designed and surgical. And so that's something that I latched on to as a teenager. And I think that helped me fall in love with, you know, making videos and editing because, you know, the realization that, oh no, this isn't just, you know, random pointing and, and right. slathering music over things. Um, you can be really surgical about it. In moving forward and making, like filming more skateboarding, I was just kept trying to find ways to push it even further. For Mining the Gap, I was doing something that no one else was doing. So it was a little weird, I think, because I was running, I was running with a rig behind people, in front of people, weaving in and out of traffic with them. Is that dangerous <laughs> at all? Weaving in and out of traffic. I don't know. I'm not a parent, but as soon as I hear that, I think, okay, wow. Yes dangerous. and no. I mean, you're not attached to the to the skateboard in the same way that you kind of are on a bicycle. I feel right. like I'm, I feel more, I wear a helmet when I bicycle, but I don't wear a helmet when I skateboard. Once you skateboard for over half your life, you know, which is true to me and the characters in Minding the Gap. Um, it's almost like you're more comfortable on a skateboard than you are walking. Hmm. Yeah, There's extra layers to that in your movie as well. Uh, I, want, I would love to talk to you about just 
when it was that you decided to at some point start interviewing skaters about their home lives, their emotional lives? I mean, I was also emulating this as a teenager. Um, those translator videos, you know, like one of them I really latched onto is called First Love. Um, they had all the professional skateboarders who had parts in that video talk about when they first fell in love with skateboarding and why it's their first love. And it was very, you know, there, it wasn't tongue in cheek. They were really being earnest about it. Um, so I did that as a teenager, you know, I'd like get people to talk about skateboarding in a serious way. And then um, I sort of started making other things outside of skate videos and interviewing people. The first project where I really got deep into the subject of home life and trauma and identity and growing up was a project about two Vietnamese immigrants who both had happened to move to Chicago in 93. Um, I made that while I was an undergrad. I was studying English, but <laughs> any chance I could get to not write a paper <laughs> and like do a video project instead, um, I'd right. swindle my professors into, into accepting that. <laughs> um, so I did this project on these two Vietnamese immigrants and uh, you know they both experienced a lot of trauma growing up and it really hit close to home for me. Um, and they talked about you know what it meant to try to find their identities now, you know, having come from such a fractured past. And that was really powerful and really emotional. For my next project, I sort of went back to the skateboarding community in a way. I was noticing how sometimes there was more lenses than skateboards at spots. You know, it's just Mm. like, it was the proliferation of digital camera devices and YouTube and Facebook. And so I interviewed videographers and photographers, media makers and skateboarding to try to, you know, like deconstruct it. And a lot of people who filmed and took photographs of skateboarding talked about, you know, how it helped them get through really dark adolescences sometimes. And so, you know, that was sort of another pin in the in the board for me in terms of thinking about what I want to do next. That's sort of where Mind in the Gap was birthed from, was like right. these two projects, you know, sort of trying to go even deeper in the skate community, you know, about issues of growing up and trauma and so. Yeah, I mean, the project started with me going around the country and having these really frank um, conversations with people. Some people who I'd like had loose connections with, other people I'd never met. And then a year and a half in, that's when I came back to Rockford, noticed this kid, Kier, and uh, was like, hey, can we can we go interview? And then we talked about his father for an hour and a half. Because Kier is one of the main characters in the movie. What made him stand out for you? Mostly because he was... Charismatic is probably not the right word. Uh, he's full of energy. He's a ball of energy yes. that is just contagious. There's something about that. And he's really good at skateboarding. Really, really good. And he was this one black skateboarder and this group of white friends. And that's something we talked about that first time we sat down as well and became you know, a thread that uh, is very much part of his, his story in the film. Right. And at what point did you and Zach, who you'd known personally for a longer time, decide to, because I do definitely want to talk about Zach's thread here, because I think there are things that he reveals in this documentary that he allows you to reveal in this documentary that are very sensitive. Um, But at what point did you sort of get him in on the making of this project rather than sort of just filming skating? After I moved to Chicago, it's like we sort of lost touch. I sort of had a situation where I had to move into a friend's place for a few months when I was in Chicago. And he happened to be sleeping on the couch for a few months. So it was a weird apartment situation. I was studying undergrad and I would like just come home and like write papers. And I'd like walk past him chugging beers or whatever in the living room. He just wouldn't really talk. And then when I came back to Rockford and started following Kier, um, we had had several shoots before. Um, Kier was just happened to go to this sort of backyard pool party 
and Zach happened to be there. And I was like, oh, hey, how's it going? You know, it's like long time, man. And then I noticed his girlfriend was there and she was pregnant. You know, like her belly was really big. And I was like, oh, interesting. And so um, that's when I pulled him aside and did a, you know, just a on the fly interview with him. And um, I was like, okay. And from that, we had decided to, you know, he'd give me permission to go and follow them into the hospital on the day of their birth, which is what happened, which is a scene that didn't make it in the film, but it's a really powerful scene. Um, so that's kind of how we, we connected and we started off filming. Right. So uh, for the people who haven't seen the movie, something that you reveal about both Zach and Kira and yourself are just these sort of histories of um, childhood abuse, of you know physical, emotional violence. Um, and in the case of Zach, a, a sense of how that might pass from whoever abused him to him and from him to then his girlfriend, um, et cetera. But a question that sort of is on the minds, I think, of anyone who's seen the movie is how do you get people comfortable in this way to reveal such trauma to the camera? Trauma is sort of the wrong word because it's not as if we're the movie is indulging this like leering sense of violence in people's lives. But we are talking about, you know, parents, fathers in particular, abusing their sons. And and the honesty of your movie, I think, is something, and, and people's comfort being honest in that way is something that I think is really striking, even as, even as someone who's seen subjects like this in front of, in documentaries before. You're uniquely sensitive to these things. And I'm curious about the interactions you had with people, the conversations you had to have with people to get them to be comfortable revealing themselves in this way. It's a two-way street, right? Like, I mean, you know, they're they're going to give what they want to give. I think you have to just sort of know that they have control over whatever, you know, they want to talk about. Um, but that's part of the reason why I started following Kier in particular is because for him, that two-way street was wide open. First time we sat down and talked, and this is a person I've never, you know, had an interac- interaction with except for filming him getting into a fight when he was a little kid before I knew who he was. Me asking him about his relationship with his father, he just started, you know, I mean, it took a little bit of prodding, took a lot of patience and sitting through um, awkward silences, but um, it's this sort of subtle chess game of unsaid uh, asks and unsaid permission giving. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think you just pay a lot of attention to cues that I think they're they're just trying to give in terms of it's painful to keep going but maybe i want to keep talking about it um i don't know it's something that's really hard to articulate but i I think it probably started when i was a child and you know i had to be really hyper aware because i felt like i was walking on eggshells in my household where i grew up in so you look for any sort of minute cue to let you know you know like what's this what's this person thinking am i going to get hurt you know um that's something that uh, I took with me as I became an adolescent, you know, and I started having, gaining friendships and interacting with more people and having those curious conversations that adolescents have. I really wanted to feel less alone. I really wanted to, you know, like just have the proof that other people do have vulnerabilities and, you know, they feel emotions and they're going through something. But in order to do that, I had to, you know, learn how to get people to open up I like now I feel like I can't turn that off. It's just like that space <laughs> where I love existing. Last night I went out with my friends here in New York that I haven't seen in a long time. And, you know, we talked about a lot of um, really personal things. 
And then as we were saying goodbye, I was asking my one friend, I was like, do you think I like just dig too deep? Do you think I'm like digging too deep all the time? Is that annoying? And he's like, well, no, because it's coming from a place of curiosity. He said sometimes people like really want to go to personal places, but it's really about them. It's really about like either proving a point that they might want to prove to themselves or, you know, it's not about like exploring together. And I think for me, it's it's really about exploring and, you know, trying to answer these really um, deep questions that really just sort of nag at you and at night, they keep you up at night. I think we can do that better together. So all that to say, you know, I think that's sort of the, the philosophy behind, um, you know, how I was approaching Minding the Gap as well. And, you know, Kier was really open. And, you know, from that first conversation, it was like the whole film, his whole story would came out during that whole conversation. And it was like right. the rest of the time was sort of just watching him slowly grow up. It was very clear that he felt both love and anger and bitterness and guilt all wrapped up in one package um, about his father. And he'd never processed it before. And, you know, and it seemed like he's willing to process it. And then, you know, in us going skating afterwards and me not judging him for it, you know, it sort of gave him more courage for the next conversation. For Zach, it was like, I didn't, I didn't, it was actually more of a, it was a little, almost frustrating at times because, you know, Kier is giving so much emotional vulnerability, but Zach has this sort of defense mechanism of, of humor and charisma that he um, sometimes hides behind. You know, I'm saying that in hindsight even because after a while I just sort of gave up and I was like, you know, well, Zach just doesn't operate on this emotional level. You know, he's maybe he's just a more logical, you know, left brain person. But one day as things were sort of getting dark in his in his storyline, um, he just decided for like a two hour sit down interview just to really bear his soul in a way that was almost scary because it's so overwhelming and it, you know. It was so uh, relatable, I think, mm. um, in many ways. Is it that you had reached a point in your relationship that he felt comfortable telling you? or, or? I think, again, this goes back to the two-way street. And I say this because, you know, at the beginning, he's very self-aware. He's, you know, in a weird way, he's self-aware about himself, but also the process of what we were doing, like the camera being there and like representation and everything. You know, many times he said like, you're capturing a lot of like, you know, messed up stuff about my life being, but, right. um, you know, it's, it is what it is and I accept it for what it is. I think within that is, um, this validation of his story and, um, you know, at least feeling like he's getting, someone cares about him enough to just even be there, even for the bad stuff. In the one interview where he really sort of bears all, which is sort of the climax of his storyline on right. the, on the emotional side, at the beginning of that interview, he said, Hey Bing, do you want the real shit or the fake shit? I was like, well, I've always wanted the, yeah and i didn't know that that was like a see i thought that was just like a you know like a funny quip but um he he gave me the real shit and it's like oh okay yeah he's he's just like everybody else you know and has the same worries and concerns and it's just been buried and repressed under many many more layers than 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 for kier right yeah i mean and speaking of it being a, a two-way street a choice that you make in the documentary that I think is extremely powerful is that you gradually sort of reveal yourself as well, um, partially through an interview with your own mother about your own abusive experiences with your stepfather, but also just an interview with uh, the skate shop owner 
um, who seems to have an instinct about you that he expresses to you on camera um, about your sort of home life, things that he sensed. In the making of this movie, where did your storyline come into it? Were you intending to reveal this much of yourself? Because I, I think even without your storyline, I always sense that there's a personal stake here for you. But I'm curious about when you decided to get in front of the camera. Yeah, I didn't intend to do it at the beginning. I think the first time the thought sort of came up was in feedback screenings. Hmm. People, you know, asked like how I came to find this story. And, you know, I explained to them, well, I'm also from this community. You know, I also skateboard. I went through similar things. And so I'm making this film to, you know, try to tell a story and make a narrative out of something that doesn't make sense. Um, and they're like, well, are you, have you thought about being in the film? And I just kept saying no and kept, you know, deflecting. But then, you know, there's a, this is a spoiler, but at one point in the film, we find out that um, one of the characters has been abusive. And so, you know, I had to sort of find a way to move forward. And there are many things that came out of that. You know, I took a 40-hour domestic violence course. I had to sort of go through this process of accepting, you know, this film might not ever come out. But uh, one of the things that came out of that was, okay, I think there's a reason to explore my story now. And the storytelling mechanics sort of way where, you know, like, and it came out of the question of like, what gives the filmmaker the right to keep going here? You know, it's a very private matter. And I think, uh, you know, thinking about the filmmaker as a character, if we understand the filmmaker, if we understand the filmmaker's reasons and backstory and sympathize for the filmmaker, then I think, you know, I don't think it justifies it because it's so subjective, but, you know, it helps, helps, it would help the audience understand, you know, right. at least a reasoning for it. Right. And and not to spoil things, but a substantial part of this movie, and I think one of the, really like one of the hearts, one of the many hearts of this movie is an interview that you have with your mom. Can you tell us about getting your mom into this? I could tell that it was a difficult conversation. How did you convince her to want to appear on camera? This is someone that I would imagine never thought her son would be in her living room <laughs> with with camera equipment and lighting, asking her questions about her relationship to your stepfather. Maybe I'm being dismissive, but I don't, I don't, I didn't see it as that big of a hurdle. Hmm. You know, in many ways, it was like, I mean, I think maybe because people don't understand like how little I saw my mom and how threadbare our relationship was growing up. Um, so I actually saw it as a chance to reconnect with her. <laughs> mm. um, I mean, it was a long interview and uh, I went into it thinking about, you know, like giving the, the filmmaker's character a backstory and like understanding the family dynamics and, you know, trying to get at like who the filmmaker's stepfather was through his family. So I thought of it more like expository. Uh, and in the cuts that I did before I started working with my co-editor, Josh Altman, it was a very expository scene, the ways that I would cut it. Once he came on and, you know, I gave him that scene. It was like almost his first pass is what you see in the movie. He he saw the confrontation in it that I didn't. Mm. I mean, most of it was very much just like, okay, and then when did you move to the city in China? And like, when? why did we move to, you know, and this is the year that you went to college and you worked in this Chinese restaurant. Yeah, I mean, I just, I had a blind spot to, you know, like me wanting answers and me like, you know, expressing to her that, you know, I have feelings of bitterness and anger and I don't know what to do with it, you know. Um, that was the difficult part was in, you know, seeing something that I couldn't. Right. You know, something that you pull off in this documentary really amazingly to me is that you give a sense of 
Rockford and of its economic hardships and of those realities. And I think it's implied that that stuff is sort of an important sociological background. But something that you avoid doing is making it feel like poverty porn or making it feel sort of condescendingly dark. And I'm curious about how you found that balance, how I walk away with such a, a keen sense of what Rockford is like for you guys in a material sense. But I don't walk away thinking, well, gosh, like Rockford just seems like this awful place. I, I just have a, I feel like I have a really naturalistic sense of the city, but not one that's despairing. Um, and I think that's a, a really interesting balance that you strike. And I'm curious about how you how you did that. Part of it was just like seeing other I didn't start watching a lot of films, not just documentaries, but films in general until I was in my 20s. I didn't you know, grew up being a cinephile or anything, but You're probably better off. For it, to be <laughs> but like, you know, and watching documentaries, yeah, it was a trope. It was like, you know, driving through a bad part of a town and like, you know, ha like having voiceover talking about how there's crime and poverty and everything. And it just, it doesn't feel human. It doesn't have, you know, this perspective that, uh, you know, feels real, I guess, right. or feels true to the experience of people who actually live there. And I think uh, Rockford, where this where the story takes place, has a particular sensitive spot to, um, I guess, press shedding a negative light on on the city. In 2013, Forbes magazine named it the most miserable city to live in in America. The response was, you know, like the mayoral office put on this PR campaign that was like Rockford's great, and I think like even Michael Moore. Like showed up and like burned Forbes magazines, like, <laughs> like, like copies. In I'm willing town. to believe that. Uh, but yeah, it was you know people were outraged, and I think um, growing up in throughout that era, um, that probably filtered into me. How do you honor the fact that you know there are these realities, this, these socioeconomic realities in the city, um, without blaming those realities on you know for the various things that people have to experience when they grow up how do you both give volition but also you know don't do that in a vacuum um, right. to your characters it was it was just the process of trying to find it at my first shoot when i went out to try to like characterize rockford it was kind of generic i was like going for portrait landscape i was like well let me show you know like the sunset and the river with the skyline in the background um and it just it wasn't really saying anything and then the next thing that i did as I came to Rockford, I just kept noticing these billboards paid for by like the ad council. Um, it was, you know, billboards um, talking about the value of fatherhood, you know, painting statistics about, you know, fatherhood in, in the community. So I was like, well, why don't I just try filming that? When I was doing it, I was like, in my head, I was like, this is so cheesy. Like this is, people are gonna like laugh this off the screen. But I had it and we tried it. And then the next thing I thought of was, well, what if we film like spots where the characters had been, but now they're no longer there and it's like a different time and it's like a way to pass time, but also like show, you know, this like metaphorical way of um, showing, you know, the way that people interact with space. So I did that. But then I was like, wait a minute, these are all skate spots. <laughs> right. Like what if we just get details on these skate spots and it's like very, you know, we don't tell people what it is and maybe slowly they'll realize that. And then the final thing, once uh, domestic violence became a major thread, um, I was like, what if I just film these big old houses, you know, speaks to, you know, what a lot of, um, you know, Rust Belt cities have, which is big houses that are sort of falling apart, but also speaks towards, you know, what happens behind closed doors. And so a mix of those things 
with just like four or five radio statistics was all we needed. I think also just a huge impression that I have of Rockford comes from just the skating footage and just seeing you guys in the streets and a sense of freedom that you have there that that would defy any sort of easy sense of the despair or poverty there. That there's, it does seem like you guys found family for yourselves. And I think that that is a good counterpoint to you know, just images of poverty. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, people still have, I mean, I think this about any film that deals with a social issue, you know, like I crave an emotional like wholeness, like a palette of emotions that honors the whole color wheel. Um, sometimes you watch a film about, you know, an issue and it's like, it's like this one note of despair or stomach turning, you know, emotion. And I think the reality of growing up in Rockford even dealing with, you know, a violent home life, you still have all the other emotions, you know, like right. at your disposal, you still experience hope and joy and friendship and love and heartbreak. And yeah, I think that's important to honor. And I think it's, you know, what's going to help us um, connect across all these lines in the modern day. Yeah, for sure. So. Well, thank you for coming in to speak. And this is a great movie, Mining the Gap, currently streamable on Hulu. Please watch it. It's one of the most acclaimed movies of the year. I'm certainly one of the best. Thank you. Thanks so much. So that does it for this week's podcast. Thank you for listening. Find us on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and review. Tell your friends. Tell your family what you're going to go see over Thanksgiving. Uh, and if you go see uh, The Favorite and don't like it, don't blame us. You can find us at VanityFair.com. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. And Richard? Rye Laws. And Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And Joanna? Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth, and this week's award for the earliest Oscar season burnout goes to Mike Hogan. Do the Oscars even matter? 